Welcome back to the People Behind the Tech podcast, which is brought to you, as always, by the Leaders Performance Institute and SBJ Tech. I'm John Porch, the editor at the LPI, and, as ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Lemire, the senior writer at SBJ Tech. Joe, how are you doing? Yeah, great. Happy New Year to you. Pleasure to, to reconnect, and I'm uh, particularly excited for this one. And a happy new year to you as well. And of course, I share your excitement because we're speaking to Gary McCoy, an individual likely to be well known amongst our listeners. Gary is the CEO of PKI, the company already changing the game across the world of sport when it comes to artificial intelligence. Gary, welcome to the show. Now, you've spoken at the Leader Sport Performance Summit. We worked together on an article many moons ago, and now you're on the podcast. It's the Leader's Triple Crown. <laughs> How does that feel? <laughs> yeah, Triple Crown winner. I've, uh, you know, that's something I will uh, obviously got to put on the resume here at some point. But uh, no, it's, <laughs> look, it's always it's always an honour. Look to work, you know, to work with Joe and SBJ, and and to be doing to have the kind of touch point that I have with the Leader's Group has been a spectacular part of my career. And so I think I'm now on my third technology introduction into the marketplace and uh, Leaders is the place I do it. And on that note, I should say that you will be speaking at the Leader Sport Performance Summit at the Glass House in Melbourne next week. So our relationship continues to develop. And to give our listeners more of an overview, Gary's background is as an athlete and high performance director for professional and Olympic sports teams. So far, he's implemented tech systems for 21 NFL teams, 17 NBA teams, five NHL teams, six MLS teams, and five English Premier League teams, while consulting to teams globally on performance and technology integration. Famously, Gary, you also helped to deliver the only injury-free season in professional baseball history, and that's probably not even half of it. Anyway, at this point, I'm going to hand you over to Joe for our first question. Yeah, the one the one uh, part of the resume uh, glaring omission uh, is that he also allowed me to spend a summer throwing a baseball injury free <laughs> yeah. and pumping up my own uh, velocity uh, eight miles per hour in just about two months time uh, without injuring my at the time nearly 40 year old frame. <laughs> but anyway, we, we, we always start with this. Uh, and given your, your varied background, uh, I'll be particularly yeah. keen to hear the answer. What technologies do you use? In your own life and on cue you raise your hand and show yeah. off the aura ring but is that it what else do you use yeah, in your own daily no, life? no i always i also use eight sleep uh the recovery side of the equation became important to me a few years back and uh i want to say it was around 2014 15 started to really investigate technology around that and the two technologies that i stumbled into well i actually stumbled in and did some work for about a year with whoop uh then saw you know, the um, Aura Ring were part of a portfolio project that I was working on. So got to know their technology really well. And, you know, what's what's really funny is like for technology, for me, I look at it the same way I look at it for teams and athletes. It's got to have two things. It's got to be high in accuracy in the data that it spits out or be the best in its class for accurate data. But the second thing is it's got to be really low friction. The juice has got to be worth a squeeze at the end of the day. So what I like about 8Sleep specifically is it's incredibly passive technology. And some of the passive technologies that are coming in, there's another one coming in to the market next year called Box Altitude, which I really like. It turns your environment with a simple air filter into a area of low oxygen saturation so we can get those altitude training benefits. The passive technologies I'm really interested in Aura Ring's the one that I use the most, I think, plus a number of different apps, you know, sometimes Markless Motion Capture, I'll go down the list depending on the application, but this is the big thing with tech. 
you've got to start with a question. What question are you trying to answer? Right? Just don't employ, employ technology and expect it to create some miracle for you, other than the fact that you can have a conversation around wearing an aura ring. Yeah, I think it's got to get to the point where it's question-driven. So right now, I don't have too many questions, but I'm also not playing a lot of sports. So we'll just leave that there. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I know... Uh... PKI also is uh, one of yeah. SBJ Tech's uh, most innovative companies um, for the year. Yeah. So, uh, and we've spoken a few times uh, about this this new venture of yeah. yours, and you yeah. framed it well about how Catapult. You had a lot. You work there. A lot of the external load. Whoop with the internal yeah. load. Yeah. Zone Seven started introducing artificial intelligence, but the piece that was missing was the cognitive load. What did you find with PKI and how and how yeah. would that have fit into some of the uh, practitioner environments you've been in? Yeah, so Joe, as you know, and um, I think uh, the model the model that I represent in terms of high performance has a lot of kind of moving parts to it. When I say moving parts, it's sequential. It always for me started as a practitioner with understanding the psychological status of that athlete. But how could I understand psych status of the athlete? You know, what are they presenting with day to day? The existing data that I had or the existing things that I have, like I'd get these at the start of the year, these surveys that the athletes would fill out and, you know, very subjective, probably telling me what I wanted to hear about, you know, what their motivations are, what they hope to get out of a season, etc. I was trying to get some kind of psychological and emotional baseline on the athlete prior to looking at the physical systems data, which is all that stuff, the catapult, the Hawkeye, the track man, all that kind of data, even the recovery data we just talked about. But then it's technical, tactical, strategic for me. That's kind of the model of, of how this, how there's an integration around an athlete-centric model, but it starts and finishes with the cognitive load. And Joe, you're right. Look, the questions I had around that and how I stumbled into this was super interesting. Uh, I had this guy reaching out to me from the UK and I was traveling through Europe in July of 2022, meeting with some teams, doing some consults over there. And I said to this guy, uh, Walter Farfan, his name was a behavioral psychologist from a Google spin out in the UK, um, <clears throat> kept reaching out to me. And I thought, oh, he's a nice enough guy. Look, I said, mate, I'll have a coffee with you. 30 minutes at the hotel I was staying at at the Bankside in London. And that 30 minutes turned into four hours because I was leaning in learning. I was like, You've got what? You've got, again, accuracy, friction. You've got something that's 92.7% as accurate as any psychiatry or psychology profile. And it's what? 30 seconds to a minute of verbal recording with really low friction? Man, I'm in. Show me this. Let me understand it better. So that led to... Joe, as you know, through through an article we did on PKI, that led to them profiling me, taking podcasts that I'd done historically, laying out my personality profile, and then I had these check-ins, these 30-second check-ins. And I told the story in the article, but it may be good for a listener here who hasn't read that. It was, it was really interesting to me because of the five days I was checking in testing the system, on the fourth day, I thought I was holding my cards pretty close to my chest, just you know, going through, hey, this is what my day looks like, getting a verbal response. 30 minutes later, I got a call from Walter. Gary, what's wrong? And I was like, what do you mean, what's wrong? He goes, your, your voice is indicating something's up here. And I was like, oh, man, and I just kind of lost it. I said, I had a 19-year-old dog that died yesterday. Oh, my God, how the heck do you see this through my verbal response to you and he just explained the science of psycholinguistics and natural language processing and that's really really where this started for me was this 
I look, I've, and you know this, Joe, I've got this built-in curiosity about high performance. And the driver for me is always, what can we deliver in terms of technology that can drive that athlete further forward to create the evolution of sport? That's what was most interesting to me at the time and still is. So as you, as you indicated, uh, it was a phenomenal award uh, for, for us to be in the top 10 at SBJ. And ironically, we just won a second award uh, from all places, the United Nations. We just received the Responsible Innovation Award in Artificial Intelligence. And it was presented in Switzerland two days ago. We sent our COO to pick it up. We didn't even know what this was, right? Oh, you've won this award. Go pick it up. Okay, send someone to the UN, the World Economic Forum, to pick up this award. Uh, there was this committee that was, I think, Richard Branson's a part of as well that helped present that award to us. So, yeah, look, I mean, for as early stage a company as we are, right now at PKI to have those accolades and see people lean into us and recognize what we're doing, not just in the sporting community, but at large. Yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah. And I know there have been some, whether it's the beta testing or, or full-fledged, you know, clients, you've had some, some pretty yeah. good traction with some high profile, uh, you know, global football clubs. Um, yeah. you know, where are they seeing the, some of this early benefit? Cause I know there's, it's kind of like a two prong, like the, the broad personality profiling, as well as those daily yeah. check-ins, um, you know, how are you seeing it being utilized thus far? Yeah, it's really it's really how you action the data and it's always there. And I always state in any technological sense whatsoever that we've got to have the question ahead of the technology and how teams are using this right now. And I'll look, I'll go to the probably the most cognitively challenging sport on the planet is probably Formula One. And I say that because I've watched these athletes on incredible travel schedules. You know, every two weeks in the world, they're somewhere different, different time zone. They're going through test drives, you know, doing tests on the track, trying to get times down. When one of those drivers presents in such a way that he's not optimal, he might be fatigued from that travel. He might be bored because this track's really easy, but they take him out of that optimal state of flow. As soon as that's evident, race controllers are changing the strategy and how they enact racing that day. So without leaving names, we work with about five Formula One teams. You get the chance to see those check-ins nearly every every day and every morning. We've got an indication, oh, that guy's in the zone. This driver looks a little bit fatigued. And when we watch the race, we're actually seeing how they're, how they're driving based upon their cognitive abilities for that day. So that's one very direct sense use of this. But we've got EPL teams and, and probably the, the one we lean into the most because I think this guy is a staggeringly phenomenal uh, sports psychologist. His name is Malcolm Frame and he's with Southampton Football Club. And Walter Farfan, our chief innovation officer, has had a two-year relationship with him building natural language processing systems inside of uh, Southampton Football Club with PKI. And we've got to the point where he understands that this is really a measurement of how they bring players together and, and what their team culture is going to look like. So they look a lot about how they construct teams, you know, where those athletes are, what that coach athlete uh communication looks like and is that directly driving uh you know a collective positive output for Southampton so we've been <clears throat> really fortunate to work with him and look at those um you know look at those elements you know of uh, of how the system's being used but Joe the the, the real question is <clears throat> for me and it's always this way with technology it's not what questions we can answer today 
It's what is a better question we can ask tomorrow. Yeah, that's the way I want to drive this forward. Sure. I'll pass it over to, to John after this question. Um, yep. And you started mentioning the, the natural language processing, and, and the, it's mm. an area that can be used m- m- manifold. And I know that I spoke yeah. recently with the Texas Rangers who are using it to mm. summarize scouting reports in order to, yeah. just, you know, for streamlined inefficiency. Um, yep. But like, even with those surveys you mentioned, or the, the RPEs, like trying to figure yeah. out a way to get more objective quantified yeah. data that blends into a, a model. I mean, what is the potential of natural language processing in yeah. a sporting environment? Yeah, it's such it's such a it's such a big area of study right now. Like when I was looking at artificial intelligence curriculums throughout the US, I think it was the University of Michigan were offering a artificial intelligence undergraduate course of which a third of the knowledge base in that course was surrounding natural language processing. So this is the thing I think we're realizing right now is the voice as unique as all our voices are. It is a biosignal that gives us indication of cognitive and emotional status of the individual. So having that, you know, it's it's like all of a sudden, you know, I, I don't have the, the technology is not something I have to wear. All I have to do is record a, a simple you know, sub one minute answer to a question. And I can get that status derived from from that. So where we're being dragged into a lot right now is looking at things uh, like we've got people are asking us, is this a fintech product? Is it something you can do using the financial industry? And so a lot of demand we're having right now with some pretty big banks and pretty big desks in New York are like for us to analyze earnings calls from like a CEO and understand the authenticity of what he is stating to create confidence in buy or sell practices for that for that entity. So it's super interesting when you think about the voice and I had to shake my head a few times and say, this is real. This is what, this is a bio signal. And when I saw the work that was done, the validation studies that are continuing to, to go on, it was stunning to me that, you know, the uniqueness of voice is not only unique from, almost an artistic view of a person, but it's unique to a biosignal of cognition and emotion. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joe. Gary, my mind goes back to the Leaders Sport Performance Summit at the Oval in London in November when you spoke. At the summit, a coach casually said, I have a team looking at AI, but I have no idea what they do. That's probably quite a common sentiment. So if you had five minutes alone with that coach... What would you want to tell them? Um, if you don't know what they do, go and lead them because they probably don't know what they're doing either. <laughs> That's one of the biggest <laughs> challenges we have with data is it is it gets siloed. Like I can't tell you the amount of data scientists I'm running into in Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, there's a ton of them. And um, data is very siloed and sometimes it is not uh, put into context. And I'll give you an example of that. So back in... 2018, I think it was, the winter meetings, Joe, I think we're in um, uh, San Diego that year, and I was still working for our team in Taiwan, but I was leaning into a lot of the Zone 7 data, and Ayel Eliakam, his name is the CTO of uh, Zone 7, uh, he and I got together and we started looking at some data sets, and we started trying to understand, could we predict injury? in pitchers, in Major League Baseball pitchers. So we started going down all the TrackMan available data and pulling that out. And I was even calling the CEO of TrackMan and, and asking questions like, you know, is there interstadium reliability on this data? Because we thought we'd found some things that were super interesting. So 
one of the markers we found, and I actually mentioned this in the presentation uh, at Leaders in London, one of the markers we devised from this TrackMan data was uh, a marker we call arm accel we termed arm acceleration. So if you look inside inherently inside of the TrackMan data, you've got a position of maximum horizontal position of the arm, maximum vertical position of the arm, and also release point. And all these things were millisecond stamped. So if you took A plus B plus C, you could have a path, an arm acceleration metric that you could line up against velocity. And so what we found, we started looking at reverse engineering off injuries, shoulder and arm injuries off athletes. We started reverse engineering off that, and this was one of the interesting things we found. We looked at this data, and we could see the injury. Uh, within two weeks, there was an alteration in arm acceleration relative to the velocity being output. And these, these were happening in like what I assumed were fatigue-based moments in games because the pathway for injury is always it's fatigue, compensation, then injury. That's the pathway. One of the things we're able to deduce is, oh, at this point, there's likely compensation occurring. Legs are gone. Arm has got to go faster to achieve that 95-mile-an-hour fastball, for example. And it would be the same in cricket, be the same in these other, other sports we analysed. We analysed that data and I thought, this is absolute gold. This is insightful. We can now look at that data set. You can have that data in the tunnel to really understand pitcher fatigue. Get rid of this, excuse my language, bullshit about 100 pitches being the, the red line in baseball. It's like it's ridiculous. Load is, is not linear. If we could do that and look at that, I thought, we've got something as a prediction algorithm that is staggeringly good. So... I won't mention who the team was that we presented this to, but international listeners, if I said, name one team in baseball, you would name that team. And uh, so uh, you, you, you see their hats all over the city of London, for example. So we sat down with this head quant. Not only do they have analysts, they had you know, data scientists, they had a whole quant department. We sit down with the head quant. He's looking at our data. He says, Gary, your data's invalid. He goes, because I'm also looking at pitch trajectory. And I was like, okay, I don't know why you're looking at that from, from this data, but okay. He goes, arm acceleration and pitch trajectory must always be the same. They must always be the same. This is the head quant, worked for the organization for 12 years. Must always be the same. I was like, you know, they change alter grip on the baseball specifically for that reason, <laughs> right? To, to throw different pitches to, to fool the hitter. And he looked at me spellbound. So it just proved to me something that I turned to, I think it was Tal Brown, uh, the CEO, uh, who was there with me at these meetings. I said, Tal, I said, you can see where data sits with this organization. I said, it is siloed. And the guys who are the quants who are looking at spreadsheets have no concept even on what's going on out on the field. I was like, do they even watch the game? So there's been this massive gap between coaching and data. And to answer that question specifically, Coach, go and coach that team, that team of artificial intelligence that you have, that you're unsure what they're doing. They're likely unsure as well. Artificial intelligence and data as a general staple in sports needs guidance, and it needs transactional guidance to evolve the athlete. Uh, to me, it's, it's pretty simple, but we cannot get to a point of siloing data and letting it run just off by itself because who knows, you know, it will be the Terminator at some point if we just let it run. What is the key to helping people embrace data? How can you then transfer that to practical application? 
yeah, I think, and and that's the thing, mate. It's not it's not even that that process of data then application. The question's got to come from application back to what data supporting it. So I go always go back to the question. And look, we have two roles in high performance. It is really really simple. I think I could write a two sentence description for high performance directors around the world. Head strength and conditioning coaches is, is generally what we call them here in the U.S. Number one. We've got a decreased preventable injury. Simple, right? All the soft tissue stuff that's happening is preventable. It's, it's called preventable injury for a reason. It's preventable. We've got a reduced preventable injury. That is always law number one. Law number two is improve the key performance indicators for that athlete in their position in that sport. That's what high performance looks like. Decrease injury, improve performance. No one's going to argue with that. But how many people are accountable to that? Not many. You know, we see injury rates off the charts now and everyone talks about, oh, you know what? Yeah, they're just bigger and stronger and faster now and they and they haven't adapted. Well, bigger, stronger, faster for one, you know, for a game or half a game or whatever it is, it is not what the team needs. Yeah, we need resilient athletes long term who are conditioned. You know, it's even in that title of strength and conditioning coach. If that athlete's injured and it's a preventable injury, you haven't conditioned them correctly. Be accountable to that. So I think to to really answer that question, and sorry for the soapbox I got on there with uh, you know trying to throw some stuff around, but uh, it's yeah, it's more ask the question first for those, and the question should always be in one of those two channels: Are we improving the athlete's key performance indicators or are we reducing preventable injury? It, it, to me, it's that simple. Just get the question there. Look at the data that you need because every athlete's going to be different. Every athlete's going to have something that is an efficiency or an inefficiency that we need to look at and understand. Like if someone has fatigue, shoulder fatigue, for example, I still you know communicate and do a little bit of work here and there with Brent Strom, the Diamondbacks pitching coach. Um, the Arizona Diamondbacks are here in my backyard in Arizona. For international listeners, um, I don't know how to describe that organization. They're one of 30 Major League Baseball teams, but the best pitching coach in the game is in my backyard and, and I, I call him a friend and uh, the man is absolutely brilliant. So I still get to do a little bit of baseball work in and around with him, which is a lot of fun. But we have these discussions all the time as what data should they be looking at to offset a specific you know, injury pathway that this athlete is, was known to occur. So, mate, that's the answer. The answer is ask the question first, provide the data set. One question about something you're clearly thinking about. I mean, you just mentioned it in your answer there, Gary is how can the sports industry and AI service providers work together to ensure that the right questions are being asked of the tech and that the tech is being pointed in the right direction? Yeah, and we've actually had some discussions loosely around this in London at the Performance Summit. I said, look, I, I look out there and I go, you know what? The leaders sports group are the ones who are in a great position right now to say, hey, look, let's bring people together and take a lead on what AI needs to look like going into the elite sports market, because what we do here will trickle all the way down to high school sports in the US, for example. So I think we need to very quickly assemble, you know, a, a, like a, a core group of people from various backgrounds, you know, whether it's performance, data science, even like as deep down the line as nutrition. We need to understand data and look at data. And it's already here. Yeah, we have got massive amounts of data streaming and coming into sport from all different areas of an organization. And this, you know, where data is primarily looked at today is in the tactical domain. 
right? Should we, where do we position this hitter? Where do we, you know, how do we set up on the NFL field? You know, what is the route we're going to run, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, most of the data is tactical and it's done by, done in real time. A lot of those tactical aspects are done in real time. A buddy of mine, Matt Shelton, who's with the Las Vegas Raiders, still hard to say that, uh, with the Las Vegas Raiders, um, he is in real time analyzing this data and sending down like within seconds, you know, a play call based upon the personnel packages that are on the field to that head coach. So data exists and it's there's massive amounts of it and it's happening in real time all around us. We need analysts, we need performance practitioners, we need data scientists and we need general managers of organizations to come together and kind of create almost an ethos around how organizations need to look at this moving forward because it's not a threat. I mean, data informs, it doesn't decide. And I think, and that was a statement I heard at a leaders conference, I think back in 2014, data informs, it doesn't decide. We have that, the safety net here on artificial intelligence is us. We make the decisions, right? With that data moving forward. And you've been, you know, sort of the, the lead influence in catapult spreading in North America. And that was a, a new type of GPS data. You know, yeah. Whoop was among the, the early, you know, internal load um, monitors now with AI. How do you engender interest and curiosity from those early adopters? How do you get them on board? Yeah. And what responsibility does the, the tech company how much ownership does it need to have or about data privacy? I'm sure a lot of these mm. questions need to be answered because they you know, haven't been asked before. Um, you know, yeah. How do you see that? Yeah, look, I think um, the best practice around data privacy, data sharing, and even through the advent of things like a biometric passport where athletes are taking their data from team to team when they move away is in Europe right now. And sports in Australia are a little bit different, you know, because that's where a lot of sports science started. But we have kind of centralized ownerships of leagues and teams. So we're more attuned in that environment to share data very freely, whereas you get to the U.S. and that data is you know, held so closely to the chest for competitive advantage reasons, right, that no one wants to share it. But in the EU, this concept of biometric passport with the regulations, the GDPR regulations around data management, I think are absolutely critical. Now, understanding the privacy of data is one thing, but there's layers of privacy too, and psychological and emotional context, which is what I'm working on now, requires an incredible amount of privacy. I can tell you stories about you know, people that check in with us. And sometimes, like I said, it's a 30 second to a minute check-in somewhere in there, depending on the amount of words somebody uses, blah, 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 so we can get that, get that status point. The really interesting thing is we'll have athletes that get on there and coaches, some coaches. We had one coach get on and talk for seven and a half minutes just needed to unload, just needed to get everything that was on his chest out there. He was having a really rough day at the uh, at the ballpark, so to speak. And so he, he used it and he said to me, he said to us, you know, it was phenomenal that, you know, I had the ability to unload it and just leave it on that recorded message. That was fantastic. And I was like, okay, that's great. And I turned around, looked at Walter and said, oh shit, we better make sure these these files are secure. Where are we? You know, what does this look like? How does this done? So we've got military grade encryption around everything that we do. The only app we use external to ours is WhatsApp for voice recordings, which has layered encryption to it as well. So privacy of that data is absolutely critical. And Joe, the first part of that question was around the tech companies. You know, it, this is one of the big problems that I see right now. We talked about this in London. Artificial intelligence is here. What is going to fuel artificial intelligence? Well, some of the data that we have from wearables is probably not accurate enough to fuel the promise of artificial intelligence, which is prediction. 
That's the promise of AI, that I've ingested this data. I can tell you how that athlete is going to perform today in game. I tell you what training loads they need. I can tell you this. These are the promises of artificial intelligence to take all that data, synthesize us, and give us a prediction. Here's the problem. Even the best, the most popular wrist-worn recovery device today is 74% accurate at detecting heart rate during sleep, 50% accurate at detecting heart rate during activity. Catapult sports, GPS in general, whether it's Catapult, whether it's Stat Sports, whether it's Wemoo, I could go down a list of GPS providers, uh, all suffer the same thing. There's a two-meter error coefficient in that data set. So if you're looking at a like something like a NFL lineman, for example, his whole world occurs in a two-meter box, right? He's got to hold off those guys that are trying to come in and attack that quarterback. So if you've got two-meter error on a guy that operates only within a two-meter space, the data is irrelevant for him. We've got to start looking at other data sets. So uh, the long story short, AI is only as good as the data that's going to be fueling it. And the data that we have today, the accuracy, unfortunately, isn't there yet. Um, I think from the manufacturer's standpoint, I, I always go back like I'll try to catch up with my buddy, the old CEO and founder of Catapult Sports is a guy by the name of Sean Holthouse. I'll try to have a beer with him when I'm back in Melbourne and lean into him. He's now like strategic chairman and say, what's next? You know, how are you improving the data? What is this going to look like moving forward? Because Catapult, I think, want to be an analytics company. And I think they've built one of the most robust platforms in terms of delivering technology. You know, we've got 3,500 teams using that tech. Um, so I think they've built, you know, 400 employees, 25 global offices. You know, it's, it, it's been a phenomenal story for Catapult when you go back and look at them. And they, are, they dominate this world of GPS. But that's not enough, guys. It's not over. You cannot sit on that or else someone's going to come in and cut your lunch and, and basically take that market away from you. Accuracy is important. And now that artificial intelligence is kind of sitting in a corner, tapping your foot, going, come on, let's go, you know, feed me something. Uh, we, we better be feeding it some good data. Sure. With the, the PKI platform and, and the assessments you're doing, how static or dynamic are some of these traits? And, oh, also, oh. Uh, you know, certainly day to day, you'll see the, the, the big discrepancy. But like did the, the, the gentleman who spoke for seven and a half minutes, was he sounding better by the end of it? <laughs> he was, you know, actually he was. And I, you know, I, I did hear that recording. It's like every now and then I'll like to say, geez, what was this recording? Or listen into it. And, um, you know, obviously keep, keep that information really close to our chest. But um, yeah, he was sounding better. Now, the dynamic nature of this, and it, it's really interesting when you start to understand individual personality. And this is where you know, I've had Walter Farfan, who's who's in London running around in meetings with the, with the FA right now. If I had him sitting here, he'd, he'd give us the, you know, the, the correct definitions around this. But personality kind of is, is starting to be ingrained in that five to seven year mark of an individual, right? So between five and seven, you know, that personality is kind of identified what that's going to look like moving forward. There is some variability in personality over time, but it's not a lot. So having understanding that, gives us our baseline. Like I said, our baseline personality profiling model is 92.7% as accurate as existing subjective psychological profiles that are in the market. So that said, you know, when you think about how dynamic it is, is more about the status side of the equation. It's checking in and doing that 30 second to a minute monitoring of that voice to see where that sits, because that can change every day. I could be a performance coach at the facility 
we've had the best practice session, you know, it could be an Australian Football League. This guy's, you know, kicked X amount of goals this week before. He's absolutely on fire. He goes home and has an argument with his wife, spouse, partner, whatever. Goes home, boom, has that. He, he brings that into work the next day. I, I'm monitoring everything at the, at the ballpark. I don't know what's going on with him at home. So it's like it's like everything. We know how quickly our mood can swing. Things can change. What we're really looking at here is cognitive load. You know, if we wanted to say, you know, this is a marker, we're really trying to understand the cognitive load status of the athlete. And when we pull that together and measure that, that's what's really dynamic in this model, Joe, is like we, we would like to see that every day. And we've got a dashboard that enables us to see it. And not only that, you know, the dashboard will turn around and say, hey, you know, this guy's at risk. This guy's at burnout. And this was one of the other things that really amazed me. Physical presentation of the athlete think, oh, I don't need those psych profiles. You know, push them off to the side. An athlete who presents as bored and fatigued present the same way. Body language is the same. These things look the same. Is he bored or is he fatigued? I used to have to go out and find that out. Yeah, what's up with this guy? Veteran, yeah, he looks bored. Young guy, he looks fatigued. They were assumptions, you know, all just assumptions that I was making and questioning individual athletes to get this data. Having that data now tells me when to intervene and how to intervene, right? If someone's bored, I've got an intervention strategy. Get them out of the, you know, existing practices and, and challenge them greater. If they are fatigued, okay, is it physical fatigue that's leading to mental fatigue? What is what is the basis of fatigue? Let's address that. So having this stratification of understanding cognitive and emotional status of the athlete, that's a dynamic part of that because that can change. It can change day to day. So how did you go about assessing it previously um, <laughs> you know, with athletes? And, yeah. and also, I'm curious, is there, you know, if you're comfortable naming, like, was there one or two sort of best case examples of the most stable, you know, mature athlete that you've come across and any lessons wow. learned there about how to emulate that otherwise? Yeah, I think back through history, the history of the athletes that I've worked with, one that comes to mind was actually, it came out of my backyard, Arizona State University. And I think he's back there now coaching with the baseball team. His name is Brett Wallace. He was an All-American, played first base, third base for us in the Houston Astros organization. And I think as an example, like Wally was his nickname. I remember working with Wally uh, in Houston one morning. (laughs) One of the problems we had is the guys really didn't want to work out at the ballpark. They wanted to work out outside. So, yeah, sure enough, we'd finish a game, be 1 a.m. before I was home in my hotel room there in Houston. And uh, but I'd be up at six o'clock the next morning because, you know, Bud Norris wanted to go and work out at the Houstonian or J.D. Martinez wanted to go work out at his health club or Brett Wallace wanted to work out at the gym at his condo. And I remember one morning going in and and this is a, it's a great data story. I walked in, saw Wally. Wally was sitting there. And he's like he was a mess. And I said, buddy, what's wrong? His fiance at the time. Had, they'd had a bit of an argument uh, the night before, and I hope Wally doesn't mind me sharing this. Uh, I'll find out pretty soon if he minds me sharing this or not. <laughs> but he had an argument with his uh, he had an argument with his girlfriend, oh, sorry, his fiance at the time, and she took the dog. I mean, the one thing there's there's a couple of things you can do to piss off a man, but take the dog, oh boy, right? So Wally, he's not angry, he's just sad, he's broken hearted, he hasn't slept, he's been up all night, and so I'm like, buddy, I said, yeah, you're not working out. I said, go and Try to get some sleep here. Get the coffee out of your hand. Let's let, let, let's shut you down. That lunchtime, I'm walking across from our hotel, which was kitty corner to the ballpark, 
walking with Tony DeFrancesco, the manager, the interim manager of the Houston Astros in 2012. And this is how analytics was working with Houston at the time. Tony didn't write the lineup. Had they just fired Brad Mills, brought Tony up, brought me up. Tony didn't write the lineup. The analytics department wrote the lineup. So I'd walk into the left field corner in Houston with Tony. I'd wait for Tony to go up the long elevator, go into the analytics department, get the lineup card, bring it back down. We'd walk the rest of the way to the clubhouse. I go, what you got, Tony? He goes, they got Wallace batting third tonight against Cliff Lee, this lefty. And I was like, so for our listeners who don't know baseball, lefty on lefty is tough, right? Lefty, left-handed pitcher, spin the ball away from that hitter. Uh, and this pitcher, Cliff Lee at the time, was one of the best in baseball that we were facing that night uh, with Philadelphia. And I looked at Tony and I said, mate, listen. I said, Wally is done. I said, he can, I said, I've got him at home sleeping right now. I've told him to come to the ballpark late. I hope that's okay. Get here right before BP. We'll see what we can do there and get him ready. I said, can you call the front office and say you need to replace Wallace in the lineup? He hasn't had any sleep. He goes, yeah, I'll see. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll go call them. Five minutes later, I walk back. He goes, no, they, they said he's staying in the lineup. I'm like, we are trying to lose. This was a year we lost 108 games uh, with the Houston Astros. We are dang well trying to lose here. That's what it felt like to me because I had data – all the data said Wallace was the hitter to be in the in that position in that lineup that night. He struck out four times. Uh, he could barely barely swing the bat, you know, that evening. But it just goes. It went to me to show that okay, something was working behind the scenes here. I didn't have we didn't have any control over that situation whatsoever. But Wally bounced back incredibly well. He bounced back and he, he was three hits the next night. Two, like I think we we're playing the Cubs in the next series. He had a phenomenal series against the Cubs. He figured out how to turn it around. And as an athlete that I have trained and worked with, the deficit in performance is what enacted Wally, a really smart kid, to figure it out and overcome it and stabilize himself. He'd have a blip and then stabilize. So from an historical perspective, and I wish I had a bad PKI back then, right, 10 years ago. From a stability perspective, I'd say he was the best that I worked with. I had athletes that were off the charts, crazy in baseball. Like, how do you tie your shoes in the morning? I don't know. Uh, It's like, I don't think you have the ability to do that cognitively today. But um, to that end, I mean, the stabilization of an athlete's performance, it's kind of critical, especially in a sport like baseball. where You've got 162 games. For people who don't know baseball, and I've had some performance directors come in. I had one, uh, a mate of mine, Adam Beard, came in to do some work with the Chicago Cubs. And he said to me, he signed on with the Cubs. He goes, hey, how many games do we play? I said, Adam, you play 162 games in baseball. He's like, what? Are you kidding? I said, yeah, it's all about recovery, mate. Uh, I said, just recovery and getting them ready and, and trying, to, trying to hang on <laughs> is what that ride is like. So, yeah, look, I think uh, to answer that question directly, Joe, Brett Wallace was the most stable athlete and I think the most reboundable athlete that I had worked with. And on top of that, I think, you know, from an overall perspective, we, we don't pay enough attention to the athlete in professional sports. And that was one of my biggest problems in Major League Baseball is nothing's athlete-centric. You know, the athletes are kind of operating independently and coming in and trying to figure out, you know, how to perform at their task. You know, it's, there's not a lot of athlete-centricity in baseball. It might have changed a little bit over the last few years. But that's the thing I look at and say, you know what, keep them at the center of the model, use the data to evolve them, help them make the decisions that are right for them in their career. The Australian Institute of Sport, to cite one example, 
has a dedicated AI team and one of their roles is to establish guiding principles. You've already spoken about GDPR and data protection, but what are your thoughts on some of the guiding principles we need in the sports industry? Yeah, I'm a little bit biased with AIS because they kind of formed a framework for me educationally growing up. I remember how the Australian Institute of Sport came about was, I think it was 1976. And uh, very quickly, what was beautiful about this is very quickly, Australia became the highest gold medal winning uh, country per capita is what happened. And it sustained that way for a good 10 to 15 years until a lot of the rest of the world kind of caught up. Great Britain Sports Science and their institute caught up really quickly uh, and may lead now. I don't know. It's hard to evaluate who's in what pocket of leadership. I think 2024 Paris Games, we're going to see a fair bit. We'll see who's in leadership uh, positions there. But AIS kind of guided a lot of what I did. And I went back there in 2018. I was the head of performance for many years for the Australian baseball team. And so we went back and we'd have camps at AIS before a tournament uh, that we would go out to things like World Baseball Classic, Olympic Games, qualifications, etc. We'd be on site at the AIS and it was just always incredible resources for us to dabble with and play with. But as they're diving into artificial intelligence, I had one or two conversations in London around this. I think the biggest thing that they didn't know at the time was the error coefficients of the hardware that's generating this data. They said, oh, okay, hang on a second. We didn't know that. Uh, can Can you explain that to me again? And so we had a couple of conversations around error coefficients in data. It's it's where we sit today, right? It's like, okay, it was pretty cool in the 80s to have that big brick cell phone, right? Now I've got, you know, computing power of the entirety of NASA in 1969 in my hand, right? So it, things evolve. And I think technology has got to evolve in sport to provide the right fuel for AI to exist. So that is step one, is understand the error coefficients of the data so that you can apply a confidence interval to what your findings are, right? We've got to be able to provide that confidence interval. So I think that is step one, is understand that. But then how you create an ethos around this, I think one, athlete-centric, that's got to be paramount. Anything that is, oh, this is this is over here, this is over there. No, if it doesn't if it can be used nefariously or against an athlete in contract or it can be used in, in such a way that, you know, it's dictating even, you know, with the errors we have today, it cannot even dictate lineup predictions, for, for example. So even the tactical side, I think, has some, some error in it right now. But keeping athlete welfare and athlete centricity at the center of the model, critical. Coaches, I think most coaches are standing back waiting to see what AI does. God do what your title says. Coach, go and coach AI like it's a youth athlete, right, that needs, needs, to, needs to know mechanically how to throw that ball, how to kick that ball, right? This is, this is five, AI is like five-year-old David Beckham right now. That's what it's like. So let's teach him to kick the ball correctly and let's watch your career evolve, artificial intelligence, because it's going to be impactful. I think we're at a precipice societally that is a tectonic shift. This is massive shifts that we are undergoing right now. And it's just coaches need to embrace it and realize if you've got somebody as intelligent as AI is going to be synthesizing all that data, it's going to open up opportunities for you tactically on how to how to work with athletes. But for all coaches and even all support staff, it's going to open up hours that you can get creative by learning how to ask that next level of questions. 
And that's what we need to do is like figure that out because we have way too many injuries in sports. Um, we see debilitating injuries every day. You know, in, 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 it doesn't matter what the sport is. You know, we see that happen every day. And that's the thing that concerns me the most is, you know, the most promising athletes we may never get to see. Athletes centricity is, is the key to this and coaches coach, coach AI. That's where that needs to be. I, 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 yeah, coaches need to step in and guide this. Don't sit on the sidelines would be my one message out there. It's like, have your voice heard because, you know, AI is not here to replace you. It is not a threat. You still hold all the decision making. You still have that, right? And it's never going to take that away. We're never going to take that. Artificial intelligence, I don't think, will ever take away your coach's decisions. We're, we're humans in a, in a human environment and, and probably the most exposed humanistic environment in all industry. Okay, let, let's let's make sure coaches are involved in that process. So those are the things I look at, and coaches have to bring their context into this as well, like we were talking about earlier. You know, it's no good just looking at numbers. There's got to be some some contextual application to decreasing injury, inc- improving outputs, and therefore winning games. And what is the risk in waiting for inefficiencies to disappear when it comes to AI? Yeah, I tell you, it's it, it's super interesting because you can't sit back and wait. That's something I've learned in sport. Uh, specifically specifically giving the competitive nature of it. You know, you've, we've got general managers, owners, you know, some owners of teams that I've talked to in the last 12 months, all looking for competitive advantage. And yeah, you have people turn around and say, oh, yeah, you know, if we can reduce injury with this methodology, we'll democratize that data and we'll share it throughout the league and everybody will be healthier. Yeah, that's nice, all fine and dandy. We're in competitive sport. You know, the right models can be a critical competitive advantage, especially, especially around surrounding player health. They really can. So um, to that end, having that having that angle and understanding that, I think is 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 a critical part of the uh, of the AI ethos as well. Coaches bring your context in, drive the narrative, make sure it's producing. Like what what do you want to know? Well let's ask that question. What do you want to know? What don't you know? What are the blind spots? Because here's another beauty of artificial intelligence. It is unbiased. We all have biases in the way we're looking at an athlete, move, run, walk, sit, stand, whatever it is. We all have biases in the way we look at things. Uh, AI is unbiased and it can cut through the data and it can show correlations that we have never seen, correlations that may be critical to improving performance or reducing injury. A final question before we wrap up. If AI ultimately has the ability to challenge the primary knowledge bases of some teams or organizations, how and in what way should a team's analyst be thinking about their personal professional development in order to carve a niche for themselves? It's it's super interesting. I mean, it's, well, analysts need to, I think, an analyst coming in, the first thing I would do is go work with the coaching staff to understand context around how this, where is this data going to transact? That's the very first question I want to ask. If I've got A plus B equals C, where does where do I spend C? Where is that transaction point happening? Anybody coming into this space from a data science perspective has got to understand that they need to dive in and be generalists in areas like performance. Yeah, work with high performance directors specifically to understand the physical demands on that athlete, the technical skill set of that athlete, and to to understand what may be gaps in their technical efficiency and also start to leverage can we predict injury through this model that we are creating how do we pull this together so those are the things that i think i would merit that a data scientist especially someone in that domain coming in is leverage the data 
build the AI models with kind of direction from your coaching staff and your organization, but get creative. Get creative around this. Look for those unbiased correlations that you know, maybe nobody has seen. Explore as much as you can within the framework of the data while understanding it's not that accurate right now. It's not as accurate as we want it. I look at things that are you know, kind of in those 90s and saying, you know, if it's repeatable and reliable and it's 90% efficient, I can work with it. You know, it's met the currency demands for me. But um, I think everybody's got to establish what that looks like. And those things change in season as well. All of a sudden you get to the playoffs and, you know, I've got an athlete who may be 70% ready, but the guy who's uh, behind him is, is not as good. Okay, I might take that 70% athlete at that point in time. Same thing happens at end of contract. You know, we see those same things emerging. So, yeah, that becomes, I think, the most critical area. And if and I don't think coach, coaches aren't ready for this is what, is what I'm feeling right now. Is head coaches are kind of like, a few of them, like Thomas Frank over at Brentford, really good, right? Really receptive, and I, I want to know what's going on here. Um, same thing like Jason Garrett when when I was working with the Cowboys, when he was a head coach there, he was great. I'm sure Pete Carroll was the same. Never worked with him, but I know people that have, and he's the same. Curious, inquisitive, and will work with you and will unload their heads. Yeah, figure that out because we need to devise models that are human centric with data. And if you can be the analyst that does that, you'll be employed, I think, for the rest of your career. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Gary, we look forward to hosting you in Melbourne next week. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> coffee coffee on you, beers on me. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a deal. Thank you very much. You're welcome, mate. All right, outstanding. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.